Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to episode 123 of That's So Second Millennium. This is Paul. I'm accompanied by Bill, and we're very pleased to have Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts. Dr. Isbouts earned his uh, Doctor of uh, Letters degree in Archaeology and Art at the University of Leiden, um, and is currently Doctoral Professor in Human Development at the Fielding Graduate University in Santa Barbara, California. He's written several illustrated hardcover books, including The Biblical World and Illustrated Atlas, Who's Who in the Bible, The Story of Christianity, and The Archaeology of the Bible, which have all been published by National Geographic. Uh, Dr. Isbouts has also written and directed television programs that explore the legacy of the Bible and has just released a 24 lecture series on the history and the archaeology of the Bible by the Great Courses and National Geographic. So yeah, we're really fascinated. We were, uh, uh, we're very grateful to have the chance to talk to you about, uh, today we're going to talk about your book, The Footsteps of Jesus. Thanks, Bill and Paul. It's been a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is a great opportunity. Um, so this is a book. I mean, it's a National Geographic book, and it's it's got a sort of general audience and um, appeal, but it's also got some very interesting details for those of us who've, who've already got some interest, some knowledge. So, Bill, you had a couple of questions you wanted to to maybe lead off with. Well, I think I'd be leading off more as a layperson uh, vis-a-vis the the world of uh, uh, science and even. Art. I tend to be the uh, the journalist of our duo, Doctor. But uh, certainly, as a as a fan of books and as a fan of books of the uh, books about the the Bible, I think I speak for Paul in saying that uh, uh, we uh, we love books that kind of invite people into the Bible uh, from different uh, aspects uh, and in many different ways through beauty, through science, through art, through theology and philosophy, et cetera. And so I was just uh, uh, wondering if, if uh, you, uh, in, in all of the books that you've written about uh, the Bible, uh, have you, uh, what attracted you, in a sense, to one particular channel of interest? And have you found that uh, the books you write really do have that broad appeal to people who uh, might make discoveries that uh, inspire as well as inform. How does how does that whole communication with the reader work for you? Well, Bill and Paul, it's uh, it's interesting because when I uh, in my graduate days, when I was attending University of Leiden back in the seventies, in a different century, in a galaxy far, far away. That's right. That's right. Those of us from the twentieth century. That's right. Yeah. I, I couldn't quite make up my mind whether I was going to do history or art or archaeology or musicology, so I decided to do all of them. And, really? uh, and actually, that that gave me a new idea because you know we live in an, in an era of specialists. You know, yeah. uh, biblical exegesis scholars tend to look at the analysis of the text. Archaeologists tend to look at their archaeology. Cultural yeah. anthropologists tend to look at their aspect. What I try to do, because I'm sort of a multidisciplinary uh, uh, person, is to bring all of those perspectives together. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the idea I originally pitched to National Geographic for the book, uh, The Biblical World. Where I said, look, we have so many 
dedicated, specialized books about the Bible. Well, how about we take the stories of the Bible and we look at them from a geographical perspective, from a historical, from political, social, cultural, bring that all together. And they said, gee, you know, and now they weren't quite quite, uh, you know, convinced that I could pull that off. They said, you know, usually we have a panel of scholars who do that. All these individual specialists and my agent said, Peter Miller, he said, you know, I think he can do that. He's got that. And so they asked me to write a book outline of about 10 pages that became 100 pages. And when they mm -hmm. saw that, they said, go ahead. And it became one of their top sellers that, that year. Mm -hmm. And now the book, The Biblical World, is in its fourth print. It sold an incredible amount of copies for a book of that nature, a large hardcover illustrated book. You typically print 10, 15,000 copies. Yeah. I can't really divulge how many copies we've sold, but it's a lot. And so, <laughs> but it's more than that. Yes. It's more than that. Yeah. And that, yeah. so clearly this approach resonates with modern people. They don't want these highly specialized books. They want to say, no, make it a, give it a holistic approach. And so Nat Geo came back and said, no, you got to do the same thing. How about doing the same thing for Jesus? And he said, okay. And that became in the footsteps. So what I try to do with the footsteps is to place the stories of Jesus that we're all familiar with in its unique frame of time from a political, historical, cultural, social context. And, you know, one of the, I've been blessed with many good critical reviews of the book. And one of the critics wrote, and I wasn't even aware of that. He says, he doesn't even start to talk about Jesus until page 100. <laughs> and, and I wasn't really aware of that. I said, gee, but, you know, I need that time yeah. to, to set the stage. You know, as Shakespeare said, this is where we land our stage. And, mm -hmm. And uh, and especially, you know, the, the Hesmonian prelude to the whole tragic story of, of Herod the Great. And uh, one of the things, and I'm sure we'll get into that, is the fact that um, most people are not aware that the ministry of Jesus emerged in a time of great socioeconomic crisis. Uh, that's something they, they, you know, through Renaissance pictures, they have the feeling that Galilee is a peaceful land, rolling hills, sheep, and everybody is happy. And no, it was a land absolutely ravaged by rebellion, by war. And that's what informs his teachings. And, and that's a major part of the book. Yeah, yeah too often, our, I think that the average person just comes at um, the Bible from one perspective. Perhaps uh, uh, Catholics uh, are more prone to see it from a catechetical or rulemaking process and without any of that vivid background uh, that uh, they would look for in an exciting mystery novel or an exciting uh, adventure novel, but it's all there. It's all there. And actually, that uh, yeah, in the footsteps, there's a bit of that. There's a bit of a thriller aspect to it, because uh, when I started my research in the historical Jesus 15, 20 years ago, I, I wasn't really aware of, of the unique political context and the, you know, the, the, the incredible uh, the destruction that the Herodians wrought on Galilee. They exploited that province as a mere colony so in order to raise the funding to do all these great projects in Judea, in the heartland, such as, you know, the expansion of the temple, uh, construction of the port of Caesarea, the city of Sebaste, 
the construction of strongholds all around the territory, including, of course, Masada. Where the heck did he get the money from to do all that? You know, that was the question that 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 really informed my research. I mean, Palestine didn't have any mines, silver or gold mines like in Spain, didn't have any rich timber as in Lebanon or Gaul. They didn't have any original sources of capital. So where did that capital come from? And the answer is he ravaged the economy of Galilee, which has been, you know, moving along for centuries. Everybody kept these farmers at peace, you know, as long as they harvested their crops that could be sold all over the Middle East. Everybody left them alone, even the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, you know, let them do. The trouble was always in Judea, never in Galilee. And then come the Herodians and they decide we need to get some money. Let's eviscerate the Galilean peasantry. Let's tax them to death, confiscate their lands, create huge estates, and have them ruled, uh, governed by professional stewards. Now, these terms, estates and stewards, are from the Gospels. So even in the Gospel literature, we see how the, the economy of Galilee was completely radicalized. And of course, that creates these thousands of dispossessed peasants. They're hungry, they're disenfranchised, they have no home, they're, they're, they're ill because of the lack of proper food. And that's the world in which the ministry of Jesus was born. Very interesting. A time really ripe for uh, new ideas, new hope, um, evangelization of a new type, perhaps. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you go with, uh, with Paul because he'll understand a lot more of the science uh, that you created so widely. <laughs> we, we were hoping to talk a little bit about sort of the, the really physical archaeological details. Um, you know, sure. so you talk about these new cities that were built and, and of course, you know, later on in the book, you, of course, you talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and how, you know, the Jerusalem, the old city that we see was, you know, it goes back, you know, so little of it goes back prior to especially the second revolt in the second century. But uh, it, so much was destroyed. And of course, in the first revolt in the first century, um, what, uh, what 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 sort of were the, the most interesting uh, archaeological discoveries, say, in that that past 15 or 20 years that you've been really interested that you said in the in the Bible and the history of Jesus? Well, there, there it's a great question, Paul. And, and the, the reason is that, um, you know, as biblical scholars, we we cannot get too hung up on our theories because right? <laughs> they're bound to be another discovery. Let me give you one wonderful example is that, sure. um, you know, when I went uh, to university and, and, and decades since, it was a uh, absolute that there were no synagogues in Galilee, you know, mm -hmm. that, not in the time of Jesus. You know, uh -huh. the, the synagogues that we do know of, Bethsaida and uh, and Capernaum, of course, we're all built in the third century, fourth century yeah. later during the rabbinic Judaism. So why would you need a synagogue in Galilee if you had the temple in Jerusalem, right? None and never such dangerous words. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then in 2007, oh. uh, this wonderful Israeli archaeologist starts digging in Magdala. And uh, which, of course, is the town of Mary Magdalene. Mary oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Magdala, it's uh, Migdal in in Ivrit, yeah. and uh, and she finds, lo and behold, a synagogue. Right. Well, you know, yeah, but 
that's clearly post-temple, right? That ob- must obviously be after the destruction of the temple and the temple no longer exists. And yeah, then there is a need to start building synagogues in these cities. And uh, as she was digging, she found underneath the floor of the synagogue, so almost in its foundations, a coin. And the coin is dated to 27 AD, exactly in the time of Jesus. So now all of the scholars are, all the whole apple cart of biblical scholarship about synagogue infrastructure. And of course, with synagogue infrastructure comes educational infrastructure, because the synagogue is the primary source of education, such as it was, for young boys. And so now we not only do we know that there were synagogues in the time of Jesus, but that there were also sources of education in the time of Jesus. And so the big question is how a poor lad from a tiny little hamlet called Nazareth can become a rabbi, who is obviously very, very um, steeped in Hebrew scripture. How, how can that happen? Now a, a big part of that question has been answered. Well, yeah, and another thing very relevant on that that you discuss in the book is the presence of this city that was built by the Herodians, uh, the uh, very close to Nazareth, right? Yeah, so that's that's another uh, uh, interesting question where archaeology has some terrific answers, you know, because as you know, in the Gospels, the Gospels uh, stop at when, at least the Gospel of Luke, you know, the Gospel of Mark and John start with the baptism, but that of Luke and Matthew start with the nativity. And then the Luke takes it as far as the story when Jesus and his parents go to Jerusalem, and then, of course, he's lost, and they look for him high and low, and he's teaching in the forecourt of the temple, which, of course, is a foreshadowing of how Jesus will completely redefine the Torah. But uh, from that age, when he's about 12, just before his bar mitzvah, up to when he goes to John the Baptist in the Jordan when he's about 30 years old, that's 18 years that are a complete mystery. You know, right. there is the thriller yeah. aspect. It's just blank. What, yeah. Whoa, whoa, what happened in these eight? Why do the evangelists not talk about that? You know, modern psychology tells us that this is when a, a person is formed as a, as a character. And um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, again, after the Six-Day War, so we talk about the, the, the 70s, 80s, Somebody started to uh, excavate uh, a city called Sepphoris, Zipori in Ivrit. And uh, Sepphoris was always the capital of, the, of Galilee under the Hesmonian period. It was destroyed during those Galilean rebellions that we talked about. And then Antipas, the son of Herod the king, who was given Galilee as his domain, uh, he was very upset because he thought he was the Dauphin. He was the crown prince. He was going to be the new king. And, you know, instead of the whole kingdom, he gets this tiny little piece right. called Galilee and Perea. Two little so elephant decides, ears hanging off of it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah Galilee and Perea. Exactly. So, <laughs> as if he's a king. And so he decides, I'm going to build my own capital. If I cannot have Jerusalem as my capital, I'm going to make my own. And so on the ruins of Sepphoris, he starts to build a whole new city. Now, when you did that in Roman times, you know, you couldn't just go and say, put out a call, uh, you know, well, we need laborers for, no, you know, you, you went around with your militia and you pulled every able-bodied man by, by his ear and he was dragged in and, and compulsory labor and you would put to work, at opus publicum, that Romans called it, for the good of the public, <laughs> you know, you were conscripted. Now, this is the interesting thing, Mark 
the oldest gospel, very close to the historical transmission of oral oral information, calls Joseph a tectone, which is not really a carpenter. It means a skilled worker. So someone who knows how his way around masonry and metal work. And so now a person like that, of course, when a city is being built five miles from the village of Nazareth, mm-hmm. okay, is is extremely crucial. So, and he was known to be a tectone. So clearly that he was scooped up. And right. when he is scooped up, his son Jesus is clearly, he's now 13, 14 years old. So he's considered an adult. Yeah. So he was called, uh, cooped up as well. And so my conclusion is that those 18 years, the lost years of Jesus, he was working on the construction of Sepphoris, which you could literally see from the village of Nazareth. Uh, and that's why we don't hear anything about Jesus in those in those years. Well, and we think in the Gospel of Mark at some point, Jesus himself is called a tector or yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that I think you mentioned that or at least alluded to that in the book, that that's, you know, he he probably was, you know, put to work as, as and that's that's a fascinating it's one of the, yeah, that's that's one of those bits of history that yeah, somehow We've all managed to go all this time without, you know, knowing this thing that would have loomed so large in the lives of Jesus, Joseph, Mary, and everyone else that they knew. Yeah, and, and of course, we, we should remember that after the second rebellion, the peasant rebellion, when they rose up once again, uh, this time over the r- rumor that the Romans were taking over Judea. Now, when you do a corporate takeover, you know, today... <laughs> The first thing you do when you do a corporate takeover, you send in your accountants, right? right. You say, well, what's this business <laughs> Right, worth? that episode, yes, yes. Yeah, what's yeah. this business worth? Yeah. And uh, yeah. is this acquisition a smart thing for our shareholders? Well, right. uh, that's exactly what Augustus did. You know, yeah. He was sick and tired of these, these sons of Herod, Archelaus right. in this case, right. making the dog's breakfast of his rule of, of Judea, restless province. So he said, we're going to make it a crown province. That's it. We're going to take it over and it's going to report to our governor in, in Damascus. But let's first see uh, what, what it's worth. And that was the audit done by Quirinius that Luke is referring to. Now, Luke is a little off on his dates. You know, there was no Internet in those dates. You know, so right. census that sends in Luke's story. Yeah. Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem actually took place 10 years later. But, you know, yeah. why yeah. quibble about those days? But, of course, that created an outcry. I mean, the land, yeah. of, of yeah. sacred land cannot be right. all yeah, of I mean, Alluding to those, those passages at the end of the Book of Kings where David gets, and the whole land gets punished for David taking a census of the Holy Land. That's that's yeah. a yeah, yeah, you cannot you cannot put a value on the land of God, and that's when uh, that second rebellion starts, and it is again ruthlessly suppressed. In the process of which fields would be destroyed, livestock would be killed, all farmlands completely ravaged. So when then uh, Antipas comes around and say, "Hey guys, I need people to work on this construction of Sepphoris," these people had no choice but to do that because their livelihood was destroyed, and of course yeah. that made no part of the plan. So that's the that's the immediate setting for the ministry of Jesus. I mean, the, the whole land of Galilee, there were thousands of people who were absolutely hopeless, no land, no homes, no food, ill. You know, an area that, and, and a scene that we're very familiar with in our pandemic today. So that's why I think I'm so glad that, that National Geographic reissued the book because 
that story resonates with us today when we see very much the same thing in our own uh, society and the world because of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, that, that, that tendency of the, of the Bible and the gospels in particular to just sort of float in this, like you were describing it, this, this sort of pastoral picture that, you know, second millennium European artists have painted for us, literally painted for us. Um, yeah. And that's, that's not, that's not the world that we live in. That's not the world that Jesus lived in. It sort of underlines that for us. Yeah. And so, it adds a, it adds a new dimension to the idea of Jesus's ministry too. uh, uh, having having done such uh, notable work, uh, he was already breaking with even today's stereotype of the minister as, uh, uh, frankly, someone who's just doing a whole lot of talking and preaching. But here's somebody who helped to build a city. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah, yeah. The words the words get translated into action. Absolutely, Bill. I'm so glad you mentioned it because that's actually a big part of the book. And, and um, you know, in, in today's rhetoric, uh, political rhetoric, uh, I, I'm, I'm so really one of the things I'm, I think is a great tragedy is the fact that American Christianity is split between these political divides left and right. Yeah. And uh, along this, the, the fault lines of our culture wars. And, and I, I challenge anyone to find the roots of those culture wars and the teachings of Jesus, you know, and the one thing that I try to do with this book is say, look, what was Jesus trying to do? Just as you say, Bill, he was, he called for action. And what he called for is to build a new society. He called it the kingdom of God. If, if Jesus had a manifesto, okay, it would say on the title page, the kingdom of God, every parable, every teaching, he goes over and over again, the kingdom of God. And yet when I go to churches today, so rarely do I hear pastors talk about it, but that was the core of his teachings, right? right. He said, right. let's come together, let's let's build the kingdom of God. Now, what did that mean, the kingdom of God? The apostles didn't quite get it. You know, they were sort of scratching their heads. And he Mark says, in particular underlines that for us. They didn't get it. They didn't get they it didn't at get all. It, you know? <laughs> and then yeah, at one point he says, exasperated, you know, if you if you don't get this parable, then how can you ever understand the kingdom of God? Right. What he wanted to say is that, Look, it doesn't matter who lords it over us. I'm quoting his words. It doesn't matter who lords it over us, whether it's the Romans or Antipas or the Herodians. We as a people have the power to create a grassroots movement and create a kingdom of God on earth, which is based on the three pillars of the Torah. It's compassion for our fellow men and women. Compassion. It's social justice. Uh, to bridge the gap between rich and poor, the haves and have-nots. And it's it's total faith in God as your father, not as some remote deity up there. No, he's your papa, he's your daddy, he's your abba. And that's what made his program so incredibly original. And, and his entire career, and it only lasted for about 12 to 18 months, you know, the ministry was, was very, very short. Uh, but that's what he keeps pounding on. And I think he would be frustrated today with American Christianity as much as he is frustrated with the apostles in the Gospels. And why don't you get it? You know? right. It right. says it right here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the scope of the book, to really articulate the importance of building the kingdom of God as he envisioned it. That was the core of his teachings. Fascinating. Yeah. 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 That is a beautiful thing to think about, especially this, you know, this Holy Week and, you know, what, you know, we all have the choice of how we're going to spend our own lives, 
And, uh, you know, what, how are we going to let, you know, if, if we believe Jesus to be, you know, a great, you know, figure, an inspiring figure, a person that we should model our lives after, how are we going to actually do that? Exactly. So, yeah. so to put the and, concrete yeah. stuff underneath that. Yeah, and I, I should add one little thing, because whenever a, a book gets published, uh, you know, one of my books at National Geographic gets published, I always get lots of email from right. folks. And they say, um, you know, I, uh, Dr. Isabaz, I'd, I'd love to I'd love to read your book, but I'm a little scared that, uh, you know, there's some radical ideas in there that, that's going to that gonna challenge my faith. And if that's the case, I'd rather you tell me now, because then I'm not going to read your book. <laughs> and, and I can tell you how many emails I have. And okay. my answer all, is always the same thing. I said, you know, I'm a believer. I'm a practicing Christian. I go to church in my yeah. parish here. I said, but but I found that if you focus on the historical framework of what Jesus tried to do, uh, purely the historical framework. That is the very basis of what we're trying to do, whether we're Lutherans or Episcopalians or or evangelicals. If we deny that historical foundation, then we did not deny the figure of Christ himself. And so I said, and I always put them at ease, I said, look, there is nothing in this book that's going to upset you as a believer, because why would I do that? I want to strengthen your faith. I myself have come closer to the figure of Jesus because of what I've learned in my research about the historical context. So I hope that your listeners will will take that to heart. Not that I want them desperately to buy the book, by all means. But if you're a believer and you want to know about Jesus a little bit more and what fired his ministry, there is nothing in this book that is going to make you upset as, uh, as someone who believes in. in well, and I think the good thing about the, the audience of this podcast in particular is they're people who have confidence in their own ability to, you know, to read, digest, you know, judge critically, you know, and take, take what's new and interesting and, you know, the new insights and, you know, and then build that, take it in. So, exactly. yeah. so yeah. Um, yeah. That's, you know, that's, it's a it's a what uh, three hundred and is it four hundred page book? It's it's quite a it's quite a significant uh, addition to one's library. So uh, <laughs> and it's a, it's a big book also. So if you go to buy, it, be prepared to make some room on your shelf because that's it's, right. It's that's large. right. You know, it, it, it's it, the nice thing about National Geographic. I mean, that's such. I mean, I, I publish books with with several yeah. publishers, but they are you know really devoted to the quality. So half of the pictures in the book are mine that I took on my travels through the Holy Land, and, and it's beautifully illustrated. There are thirty two maps. That the cartography section designed for this book. Yeah. I mean, it's for an author. It's just wonderful to have that type of support from a publisher. Yeah. It's rare these days. Let me tell right? you. Yeah, yeah. It is a it is a, a business running on thin margins these days. Is yeah. my understanding. So yeah, absolutely. But National yeah. Geographic, they they cut no corners. You know, it's yeah. either quality or it's not going to happen. So right. yeah. I'm, I'm very blessed to be working with those. Yeah, and yeah, and I alluded to the book's length in order to say we can't possibly cover all of the interesting things in that book in the context of this interview. So, you know, I, I, you know, I could personally would just want to mention to the readers just the beautiful descriptions and obviously pictures of the various parts of the Holy Land, um, the, the landscapes and the, the, it, the, ins- you know, another thing we could spend a whole podcast just talking about the different landscapes and how they really, you know, would have influenced the people who live there, the cliffs and the deep, the deep, um, you know, Grob, and I believe it is the Jordan and the Dead Sea are located in um, the hills of Judea and, and Galilee. 
Oh. Yeah, I mean, we can we can just spend two seconds on that because one thing that that is always important to know when you read the biblical text is the the, the, the incredible difference between Judea and Galilee. You know, we, we're not really aware of that when we read the Bible. And if you go to the Holy Land right now, you can take the the one or the six highway, and you're from Jerusalem to Galilee. It's about an hour and a half, depending on traffic, which can be pretty pretty intense in Israel. Right. But of course, historically, Galilee and Judea were always apart culturally. Mm-hmm. Judea was a heartland. That's where ancient Judaism was based. Uh, Galilee was sort of hanging out there, you know, yeah. it was all with, the this, land of with this awful Gulf of Samaria in between. Exactly. And the, 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 and so uh, very briefly, they were once again combined under Herod, uh, but then uh, split apart again after Herod died. And Galilee, but that's why you have uh, someone in the uh, Nathaniel in the Gospel of John say, "What good can come from Nazareth? Are you out of your mind? I mean, <laughs> right. uh, Messiah has to come from Judea, not from the sticks up north." Right. So that that definitely plays a big role. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To get that to get that feel for the the geography of it. Yeah, like you said, all all of the maps and and the the very uh, the graphic the the photographs, of course. Once once you've read the book, it's you know it's another one of those things like, can I get there? How can I get there? <laughs> I really want to see it for myself. But yeah, well, not right now. Uh, I was very frustrated because you mentioned the the, the course I did for the great courses. I did mm-hmm. twenty four lectures on the history and uh, archaeology of the Bible for the great courses. Just came out in January, and we were doing it last year. And I was supposed to be on site in Israel doing those lectures. And of course, the pandemic shut the border. So what I had yeah. to do is I, I filmed the lectures in their wonderful studio uh, near DC. And then I remote directed a crew. I've worked with that crew for many, many years with a beautiful drone and going to all those places. And I remote directed them via Zoom and then dumped the, the rushes every night. Uh, and I got them in the morning. But, you know, there was, Paul, there was one great benefit to that because all the tourist sites were closed, right? Right. My DP got this beautiful drone and Uh he flies over Capernaum. He flies Uh over all these beautiful Megiddo and there is not a soul in sight. There's not a soul. No one in a t-shirt and jeans to be, to ruin the visual. So this footage, it will never be repeated ever again. Yeah, no, no. It's it's unique. Yeah. That's that's right. Well, the Lord gives us opportunities. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. something that you mentioned about the uh, that fear that uh, some people have about well, you know, uh, don't give me anything that's going to challenge my faith. That's a that's a big issue today. Um, uh, there are organizations now focused on the fear that um, in high schools, for instance, uh, even Catholic high schools. Um, there's this uh, uh, tension between science and religion such that uh, students who take the science courses suddenly emerge from these science courses losing their faith because science, uh, you know, uh, uh, one one cancels out the other. Uh, But it sounds like uh, that uh, even your own life and work uh, are testimonies against that theory. Absolutely, uh, Bill. And and I think it's a shame, really, because um, 
uh, I'll give you one example, which I cite in, in this uh, lecture series for the great courses. I talk about Genesis and the whole battle between creationists and evolutionaries. And I say, you know, why is there that gap? I don't understand it. You know, the, the Bible is not a book about history. It's not a book about science. It's a book about faith. However, however, just like it's in the Gospels, these texts originated in a particular time and place. And so they bear the imprint of that culture. Genesis, the story of how God created the world, the universe in six days, is rooted in a Mesopotamian uh, text that was very well known in at the time, whereby the god Marduk created the world in six days. <laughs> okay. And so what Genesis does is it takes that, which is a story that everybody knows in that environment, right? But then transposes it into the Hebrew context by saying, okay, now that story may be true, but guess what? It's not Marduk and all these other gods that are creating it. It's one God. It's one God, El Elohim, who creates that. That's the point. So let's not get hung up on whether it was six days and three hours and 10 seconds. No, that's not the meaning of the story. Six days, six years, six billion years, who the heck cares? The meaning of the story is that it was one God, one God who created that, one source of energy, rather than a whole bunch of gods running around. That's the meaning of Genesis. Now, if you put it that way, you say, gee, so there is really not such a large gap between evolution and creation. I said, that's right. right. But you have to look at it through the perspective of the time, not with our 21st century mindset. Right. And that's sometimes difficult. Yeah. Very good. yeah. Oh, very. That's very difficult. Yeah. Just, just like some of the, a few of the pictures that, you know, um, where we have, you know, I think Mary at the Annunciation as a Flemish noblewoman, you know, you comment there in the caption, like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's probably not exactly how it looked, but yes. Uh, exactly. Yep. Yeah. We'll do, we'll be doing that in every era. Um, but yeah. So, well, that was, that was, that's a, a wonderful chat and uh, we're really grateful to have had the chance to talk to you today. Thank you so much, yeah. Paul and Bill. It's been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you. And before we, before we lose you up, uh, please uh, tell our listeners uh, a little bit more about how to find out about the book, how to find out uh, how to buy the book and also how to um, find out more about you and your, your total of work. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, my name is Jean-Pierre Isbouts, which is sometimes a little difficult to spell. So you can you can go up to Wikipedia. Somebody made an entry about my work on Wikipedia. Or you can simply go to Amazon and type in In the Footsteps of Jesus. Chances are my book will pop up. Then you have my name. Uh, and, uh, and you can also go to Vimeo, Vimeo.com. I've posted a series of video podcasts about footsteps on Vimeo, uh, precisely because so many... People cannot go in church and during Easter to worship and, and celebrate Easter. And so uh, a good friend of mine, uh, uh, Russ Levinson, he's the pastor of an Episcopal church in Houston, Texas, asked me, can you do a series of podcasts on footsteps um, to celebrate Easter? So because I can't get all my parishioners in the church. I said, OK, so I did that. So go to Vimeo.com, enter in the footsteps of Jesus. You'll get my name. You'll get my website. And from there, you're off and running. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Great. Well, that's wonderful. All right. Well, thanks again. Yes. Thanks thank you much, very much. Good to talk with you. And look forward to our next conversation sometime in the future. That would very be wonderful. Good.
That would be wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.